Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Tennis Podcast. Catherine Whitaker and myself, David Law, are here with you once again. And we're here to talk about tennis. We're here to talk about what's gone on in the week on the tennis circuit, both men and women. And most of all, we're here this week for a John McEnroe special. What better occasion than that to talk about the great man, John McEnroe, who is 54 this week. He turned 54 on Saturday, and he's playing in his first ATP Champions Tour event of 2013, starting on Friday of this week uh, in Delray Beach. Three-day event. Catherine will be there, uh, as will Mats Valanda, who's up against John McEnroe on Friday. Oh no, I think they're playing on Sunday and it's Pat Cash who plays McEnroe on Friday. So cracking couple of days uh, or three days there's going to be over there in Delray Beach. John McEnroe will be back and we are going to get into the psyche of John McEnroe over the course of the next half an hour, 40 minutes. We've got an exclusive interview with McEnroe. We hear from Richard Evans, the man who wrote a book or two about John McEnroe. Wonderful stories from Richard. We've got your own thoughts on Twitter and Catherine and I'll throw in a few personal anecdotes from working with McEnroe as well. But before we get on to John McEnroe, Catherine, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Pleasure to be here, as always. Good. Excellent. And, uh, the week in tennis. Uh, well, the week in tennis has seen you, Catherine Whittaker, on the tennis court, hasn't it? How's it been going? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, it's been going on a thoroughly amateur level. Not not bad at all. I've only got the one opponent, so uh, it's it's difficult to make any uh, real judgments on... Have you been beating said opponent? Uh, no. No. But no. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that, shall we? <laughs> Well, yeah, but having more than three short rallies against said opponent. So uh, have you? Yeah, said opponent is is my brother. So uh, yeah, different gender. So. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. You know well, that has to be borne born in mind, of course. Uh, but uh, from what I hear from him, you've been running in pretty close. Anyway, uh, let's uh, let's uh, quickly move on because I haven't seen a tennis court uh, in which I've played on for about two years. I'm just preparing um, myself for our hotly anticipated clash on the court, David. Yes, clash whenever of the it, tennis whenever it might happen. Titans. I just want to be ready. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well. Uh, fine. Okay. Well, what has been happening in the real world of tennis? Victoria Azarenka has beaten Serena Williams, and yet Serena Williams 
that same week displaced Azarenka as the world number one. Crikey, that's a, a strange uh, turn of events on the face of things, isn't it? But first of all, Serena Williams, the oldest world number one in the women's game in history. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, that, isn't it? Because somehow, I, unlike Roger Federer, where sort of his age is cited quite a lot as, you know, a significant fact about him, um, you know, Serena is very much, I suppose, his parallel on the women's tour in that she's had incredible longevity, um, you know, sustained her position at the top or thereabouts for such a long time. And yet I just don't, I, I don't feel like, you know, so I, I don't think of Serena as a as a 31-year-old, whereas, you know, in women's tennis, 31, dare I say, it, is actually quite old. Um, Steady on. Nothing wrong with being 31, you it's know. All, it's really? all Just because we haven't even reached our 30s over there. <laughs> it's, it's worryingly, uh, it's looming on the horizon, David. I'm, <laughs> I'm clinging on to my 30s by my fingernails, I can tell you that. Um, uh, oh, well, dear, I mean, it was, it was a... Um, sort of poetic and very interesting sort of juxtaposition of events wasn't it Azarenka winning the title um, but it already being a foregone conclusion that Serena would would take the number one spot back um, you know it was being billed before the match it was being billed as as you know true number one against who the ranking says is the number one it's a cracking final wasn't it I mean it really uh, was I, I was I was impressed with Azarenka. I mean, I think Serena was, I mean, she wasn't at her best. There's no question about that. But, you know, Azarenka has got to beat the player in front of her, a player who has, she's had a tough time against over the last 12 months or so. But she she is really strong mentally, Azarenka. She doesn't back down. She is, and she was engaging in some real uh, mental antics on the court, wasn't she? She was... Um making Serena wait so on several occasions to serve and really sort of stretching the limits of, of the time rule and, you know, playing at the service pace and that sort of thing. But then, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do to be, to be well, the now world number one. And I'm, I'm still left with the conclusion that if Serena plays well, Serena wins. Yeah, if, the, she's, um, her, if that, she's at her best. Exactly, or, or, or close to her best, I would extend that conclusion too but I, I don't want to take anything away from Azarenka because it takes quite a player to to make Serena not able to produce her best and just quite a player not you know most players walk on the court and they're already three love down against Serena Williams aren't they it's that locker room aura and that I don't think that even occurs to Azarenka does it I mean she she has a confidence um and a steel um, that that gets her a long way um, on the court, and uh, she did fantastically in that final. Yeah, she did indeed, and and unfortunately for Azarenka, she's had to pull out of the tournament in Dubai uh, this week because she has a uh, bruised bones or something like that. Um, I think just sh- sh- the sheer kind of fatigue on the on the joints, isn't it, of of all that pounding on, mm. on the hard courts and all that kind of. It's thing. a tough and, surface, you know, isn't it? It's, it is a tough is. surface on the body. Funny, uh, funny enough about Serena going to world number one in a, in a week where she actually loses to the, the woman she's displaced as world number one. I mean, there have been a few funny stories like that over the years. I remember when I was uh, on the ATP circuit many years ago, Yevgeny Kofalnikov reached world number one and then subsequently lost six first rounds in a row as the world number one. 
Oh, ouch. Yeah, that was not fun for him at all. All the ranking system, th- you know, it was, a, it was a difficult one to I defend. Think that, that, that's, I think that's that called month. not coping with the pressure particu- particularly well. <laughs> but, Yevgeny, if you're listening, we didn't say that. Um, uh, Laura Robson has had a, a bit of a, a tough couple of weeks, hasn't she? Because she's lost first round in, in Doha and Dubai. En route from one to the other, she had her jewellery stolen from her from her suitcases. And we've today found out she's deleted her Twitter account. It's not been the best couple of weeks in her life, has it? No, I think there's more to be revealed there, isn't there? I think she hasn't made a statement yet about, you know, whether there's any story behind the deletion of her, the rather out-of-the-blue deletion of her Twitter account. I feel for her with the jewellery. I find it just distressing enough having my bags go missing, um, you know, when travelling. So having them go miss having items go missing permanently uh i mean must be um pretty distressing what i mean how yeah, much especially jewelry... things of sentimental value yeah you, know, you can have insurance and all that kind of thing can't you but you know if something personal gets stolen on a trip it's i mean especially when you know that somebody's been through your bags or something like that that's it's horrible mm, yeah i i feel for her for that and um it's a tough loss for her um yeah she, there are going to be bumps in the road, though, aren't Yeah, that's exactly I mean, what I was going very to say. Young. Yeah. I mean, she's a teenager. She's going to have, especially with her type of game, you know, it is probably a fairly hit or miss game, you know, a little bit like Kvitova. If she's on, most opponents are going to struggle to live with her. But if she's if she's a little off, mm. it can it can probably come apart quite quickly. Yeah, she's, she's going to have matches where she looks like, she could be anyone in the world and and uh she she shouldn't you know if she if she continues to play like that she shouldn't look and she's going to have some matches where it just looks horrible isn't she it's it's just going to be a disaster and um because the, the percentages in her game um are are pretty small um so she just needs to to um develop a way to maximize the consistency in her game you know she's she's never going to be that grindingly consistent player but she needs to unlike heather watson who who won another match seven six in the third uh, the other day in oh, three she's hours she's getting I mean, a bit of a reputation isn't she is a it's great yeah a clutch player is is oh, certain God, americans you did not say that say. right Cancel the podcast. It was a quote. I so, was doing those. I was doing no. those quote symbols with my fingers as I said that. Doesn't work on the radio, Catherine. <laughs> C- I hope that it came across in my in my slightly ironical tone. Right, uh, applications in to the tennis podcast if you would like to take Catherine's place as a co-presenter. We are not having anybody using expressions like clutch play. Uh, uh, anyway, so um, Roger Federer has been in action. He was in Rotterdam and he lost, I think it was in the semi-finals, wasn't it, uh, against uh, Julian Benito, who eventually went on to lose against uh, one Martin Del Potro, who continues to sort of mop up that level of tournament, doesn't he? Cracking tournament, incidentally, the Rot- Rotterdam ABNM Row uh, World Tennis Tournament. It's one of the, the, it's pretty much the longest standing tournament. Certainly the longest standing sponsorship of a tournament uh, in on the circuit. And and I think that they were celebrating their fortieth year. Wow! Um, cracking achievement. Great great tournament run by Richard Krajicek, who we know from the ATP Champions Tour. And no surprise to us that he's run such a good good tournament. But uh, Del Potro. He is still knocking on the door, isn't he? And eventually, 
I think it's coming down. Well, I know it's coming down because I've said he'll reach a Grand Slam final this year. Yeah, him and Caroline Wozniacki, just to remind all, all right. the assembled listeners. Um, yeah, on that surface, indoors, uh, he looked uh, world-beating. He looked like he... It was a shame he didn't have the opportunity to face up to Federer in the final because I have a feeling that uh, he he still would have come out on top um, I, I think he would have beaten Federer in in that form. So it's a bit of a shame that Ooh, they didn't in, get that indoors, final. Indoors, I'm not sure. Indoors, I mean, you know, Federer is awesome indoors when he's when he's on, isn't he? Yeah, he is. But I'll tell you what, Del Potro looks pretty awesome indoors when he's on. And at the moment, he is on. So um, I'd be interested to see what he looks like. Yeah, Indian Wells and Miami outdoors, still on a surface. You know, we know he likes American hard courts. He's a he's a US Open champion, but uh, he will be one to watch uh, in Miami and in Indian Wells in the uh, talking of players weeks. that are talking of players that are, are on. How about Milos Raonic, who's won his third consecutive tournament in San Jose, which um, sadly is the final year that San Jose will ever take place because uh, that sanction has been. Uh, uh, bought by uh, one of the other tournaments. I think it's moving out to Brazil. Yeah, isn't it, it's heading tournament. to South America. As um... yeah, I mean, I say sadly. I mean, great for great for Brazil. Um, sh- you know, it'll be. Uh, I hope a great atmosphere out there. But San Jose has has been around for more than a hundred years, um, and uh, you know has, has had some some wonderful winners. I mean, Sampras Nagasi and Chang all used to play that tournament. It's it is kind of a shame to lose it, isn't it? Really, it is a shame. But Milos Raonic will forevermore be the San Jose champion. Nobody will uh, yeah. usurp him from that title. So, and and you know, it's it's quite a statement from him uh, because you know I think he. He wasn't 100% fit in the match he lost. Who did he lose to at the French Open? It was Federer, wasn't it? Uh, So the Australian Open, rather. I think he lost to Federer. And he wasn't 100%... Um, no. fit in that match I don't think and and he's come out and made another statement here he had a great Davis Cup result recently you know I do wonder whether he might be a threat in Indian Wells and Miami as well true I think he was quite far off 100% fit in, in Australia um, by the sounds of it so um, yeah I mean so far so good for him the test comes in Miami and Indian Wells so uh, yeah let's re- reschedule this discussion for uh for perhaps after indian wells and we'll see uh, what sort of results he can notch up there and um see if uh, we can really take him seriously as a as a top five top eight contender because that's the leap really that he needs to make now he's proven himself on the level just below that i believe and uh it, it's that next leap now for him yes indeed well we'll look forward to seeing how he gets on I think, Catherine, it is time to talk about the man we are here to celebrate in episode 31, the man who turned 54 on Saturday, the man who plays in Delray Beach at the start of the ATP Champions Tour on Friday against Pat Cash, Mr. John McEnroe. He won seven Grand Slam singles titles, three Wimbledons, four US Opens. He notched up nine Grand Slam doubles titles, and he won in 1984. He won 82-82 of the 85 matches that he played. He only lost three matches. He'll be remembered more than anything for his outrageous talent and touch, his volcanic temper, and his rivalry and friendship with Bjorn Borg. Catherine met John McEnroe a few months ago on the ATP Champions Tour and started by asking him for the first occasion that he ever remembers laying eyes on Bjorn Borg. 
First time I clapped eyes on him was actually um, a ball boy for him. So that was the first time in close up at the U.S. Open. That was probably out of 72 or 3. So that's way, way back. Um, and there was something magical about him then. You could even tell there was this aura about him. And I think it was the following year or two that I watched him sort of abroad while he was playing at Wimbledon and all of a sudden there were these hundreds of girls outside the locker room going crazy and so all of a sudden for kids like me it was like wow man I want to be a tennis player if, if, if this can be anything like this this is pretty incredible so um, he had sort of the looks and he sort of had this following and and then when we actually started playing and I became like this rival of his it was uh for me somewhat magical to be sort of be able to be part of that because it seemed like there was such a great time in tennis that tennis was exploding and um to be part of that was amazing now i don't hear you when you talk back on um on your on your past achievements or major matches i don't hear you talk very much about instances where you've been really nervous can you tell me which uh, match you can remember being the most nervous before the match uh, you know, it's hard to sort of differentiate. Uh, I think probably the most nervous I ever was was my first Wimbledon when I went out in center court for the first time. I'd say that was the I was basically having trouble breathing just because I was playing Jimmy Connors on center court and never had played there before. So that sort of uh, opened my eyes to what it was all about a little bit but I was literally my knees were buckling and I felt like I was having trouble you know, be able to hit a serve I read somewhere that you were actually relatively quiet on the court as a youngster can you remember the first time you got really angry on probably the court? at Wimbledon what I remember but some people may dispute this but the quarters of Wimbledon was the first time that I actually started questioning calls when uh, I played Phil Dent uh, because I didn't have umpires. There's no one to yell at anyway. So uh, it wasn't something that was even an option, really. So uh, it was actually at the time where Phil and I had played at the French and there was a lot of bad calls. And he ended up telling me, hey, listen, you know, now you're in the pro, son. You got to go. If you want to make a complaint, go. I was actually giving him calls. So, so I learned quickly that uh, perhaps they weren't on my side. That final against Jimmy Connors uh, in 1984, possibly one of the most one-sided Grand Slam finals. Um, before the match, did you have a feeling? Did you were you feeling like you were going to produce something special that day? Uh, I did, yeah, I did actually. But you know that doesn't always happen, so you sort of want to keep it bottled up. You almost want to make sure that it does. Don't do something like so you get superstitious and you're like, wow, this is. Uh, am I really feeling as good as I think I am? You don't want to sort of leave it on the practice court so I was actually was sort of feeling like I mean that was the best tennis of my life that I was playing so uh, and it turned out to be the best tennis of my life so it, at, at the time the magnitude of it was I was definitely aware of it but I didn't realize that um, it was going to be that perfect as we speak you're wearing a London 2012 t-shirt you're obviously there for the fortnight working for for BBC and NBC, you missed out on the Olympics during your career. Is that something that you now regret? Well, I mean, I think now I would have liked to have played at the time. I didn't think it was right. In a way, I still don't. But um, I feel like uh, tennis in the Olympics is something that's gotten bigger. Um, And I think that in Wimbledon, uh, having it at Wimbledon helped a lot. And yeah, I would have wished I had a gold medal, but um, life's okay.
Well, there's John McEnroe talking to Catherine Whitaker a few months ago on the ATP Champions Tour. And you know what I really find fascinating, Catherine, is the way he analyzes his own outbursts, his own temper tantrums, in, in as much as he doesn't shy away from them. He, he's well aware of, of what he used to do. And, you know, he used he actually, to do. Well, used he, to do. That's a fair point. Yeah, he does have <laughs> the odd meltdown these days, doesn't he? <laughs> Although uh, he tries to make out that he's uh, he's sort of doing it for the for the sort of punters. But oh, well, I've got my own it. opinions about that. Yes, no, he's a, he he still loses it with the best of them. There's absolutely no question about it. But it is interesting, isn't it? How how he sort of developed that, and he didn't always used to lose his temper at the very start of his career. In fact, he he. He wrote about it in his book, didn't he? About how he used to give points to opponents until until he was pulled up, and he and he mentioned that in t- in the interview there. Yeah, he sort of did a reverse Roger Federer, didn't he? Roger Federer famously used to be a bit sh- short fused in his junior days, and 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 learnt to uh, to rein himself in. Whereas John decided that uh, what would benefit his game would be. Uh, putting fewer limits on his uh, on his emotional reactions to things. And to be honest, uh, can you argue with it? Because there is no doubt that it, it fired him up, didn't it? I mean, there, there were instances, you know, when he had his outbursts on the court, question line calls, you know, got into spats with opponents, and then it hit an absolute purple patch following that. You know, he, he admits freely that he, he recognises and recognised at the time that that it fired him up. That it was it was um, be it consciously or subconsciously a, a motivator and a real spark um, to his game. So and you know champions do what they need to do to win, and and that was one of his tactics. And uh, you can't criticise seven Grand Slam titles. No, you can't, Catherine. Uh, demeanour wise, when you play your brother, are you a John McEnroe or a Bjorn Borg? Do, Oh, I'm a bit of a John McEnroe, you know. I'm certainly not serene. Um, if I'm, if I'm, I just can't bear to play badly. I can't bear to to miss it. Um, I, I do understand the frustration. It's more if I'm being beaten by a better opponent, which I frequently am. Um, then that I can I can come to terms with that. If I am not, if I'm playing what I consider to be subpar tennis, I. I cannot cope with that. I am, I am my own worst enemy. Um, I, w- I wonder. I wonder why Catherine had got that sort of dent in her podcast microphone. It's because she th- didn't think she'd quite put the effort in in that particular podcast. You know that one a few weeks back. She, <laughs> she slammed her microphone into the desk. The, no, one, really. the one where I had touched down from Australia not three oh, hours earlier, and was... yeah, the one where you were getting everything wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was fantastic, and I recorded it and I put it on a loop um, oh, just dear. just to prove that Catherine gets stuff wrong. Uh, anyway. Nobody will have covered the career of John McEnroe more broadly and intensely than the great British broadcaster Richard Evans, somebody we know well on the tennis circuit. He's been around for 40 or 50 years. He's written books about McEnroe, and he vividly remembers his first ever encounter with the American. So what did he think of him? Well, I certainly didn't like the look of him when he first appeared at Wimbledon in 1977 with his tousled hair and headband and weird behavior and obvious sort of out of control temper but uh, I was very lucky because um, Peter Fleming was already a good friend of mine Um, in fact Peter lent me his wonderful little Datsun Z snorting little monster which he'd left in the 
about five stories down in the, in, in the UCLA garage when he left UCLA and he was under a cover and I was in LA writing a book with Alan Fox and I needed a car. He said, well, why don't you use mine? So um, I, I drove Peter Fleming's Datsun Z around LA for six months, which was great. Um, but anyway, um, uh, he, he was a friend of mine. So uh, McEnroe was playing um, very early on. He was 18, year after he first appeared at Wimbledon. He was playing at Wembley which, of course, was no longer the Jack Kramer tour. It had become the Benson Hedges and was very much a big part of the circuit, the worldwide circuit. There was this big indoor tournament at Wembley in November or October or sometime. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This edition of The Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tie break or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. And uh, one night uh, McEnroe finished his match and, and Peter said, come on, let's go and get a hamburger. And we ended up having a hamburger. There was a good little hamburger joint in those days in Park Lane, which of course didn't survive, but uh, it was quite popular. <coughs> and so we went out and we just, the three of us, just had a hamburger together. So I got to know John on a personal level. And I realized then that the, the guy had a brain. 
you know, he, he might have been crazy, might still be a little bit crazy, but nevertheless, uh, he had a brain. And that broke the ice because the, the primary thing, which obviously people may have understood or not, he was indescribably shy with adults. He was great with kids. And, and, and one of the problems was, apparently, that his parents always sent him upstairs with a hamburger when they were having adult uh, company for dinner. And he was shy naturally anyway. So he never, during his, his formative years, he, he, he was never used to being in the social company of adults. And uh, it, it took him another year, I think, after that, or maybe even longer. It was the WCT doubles in Montreal. I remember it to this day. And it was just before Christmas, and there was a cocktail party to end the tournament. And I went up to him to say, you know, goodbye and happy Christmas. And he turned around and he shook my hand and he looked me straight in the eye. And I'd never seen him look me in the eye before. And I, it sort of almost knocked me back because he had those piercing grey-blue eyes. And, and suddenly he had the confidence to look someone in the eye and, you know, relate to them as, as, as hopefully one, one can. Um, so that's how shy he was. And he was also a nightmare to interview. You, you would have been absolutely in despair as a radio journalist because his brain raced far faster than his mouth could get the words out. So he'd start saying something, you know, I really hit that bad, but you, but you know, it was the, so actually, you know, what I was supposed, but, but really, you know, I didn't want to play it out, but, but, but and you, he said, just calm down, get a, get a <laughs> sentence out, finish a sentence, please. And this was the man who's now turned into this fantastic broadcaster, but he just stumbled over his thoughts because his brain was racing. He's a very extraordinary human being. He's pas comme les autres, as the French say. He really isn't. He's, he's the most distinctive human being I think I've ever met. Given all of that and, and what we know of him, I mean, he, he's, he's really he's famous for two things more than anything else. One is sublime talent, and the other one is just an extraordinary temper and, 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 and the, the tantrums that we've seen on the court. Where do they come from, Richard? Did you ever get to the bottom of, of, of what causes that and, 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 and why it manifests itself or how it did? No, I don't. I mean, he's Irish. <laughs> I don't want to defame a nation. Um, but, the, but, they, but they have a fiery temper. I mean, somewhere that's, that you could say without being too stupid that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a fiery aspect to the... Irish nature, um, nothing like John McEnroe, though, for the average person. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's got something in his brain that triggers a temper that is virtually uncontrollable. Do you think it's a sense of injustice or a sense yes, of? There's, uh, a, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, and I'm afraid we, you know, I don't want to get into this star sign business but we're both Aquarians and, and uh, because of that I honestly feel I think I understand him more than some people might uh, there is a huge sense of injustice he's, he's basically a good person um, you can say that a lot of what he's done in his life is inexcusable and absolutely correct he's been awful to people uh, with no good reason 
He can still be rude to people, even now at his age, which is inexcusable. Um, I'm not defending him on that at all, but there is a, a decency in the man, and, and when something unjust happens, not just to him, but to other people as well, it really gets to him, and he can't handle it. And he should have learned how to handle it, but he can't. And that's all you can say. And people who say he did it all on purpose, he didn't do it all on purpose. I mean, I've been in locker rooms with him after he's had a you know, real tantrum. And you'll sit there in an absolute funk, you know, miserable as sin, saying, why do I do this? You know, I don't need this shit. You know, I, I, I just bring it on myself. And you see the real remorse of the man. Now on the, on the seniors tour, you know, as he says, you know, that's what they pay me for. And I think he does let himself go when he could be perfectly under control because he thinks that's what's expected of him. And I think you're affiliated to the tour. I think you're, you're probably have been, you've probably been appalled at certain moments, but I think basically it sells tickets, unhappily, but it does. And uh, so he's a, he's a hugely complex human being. Um, wonderful father. Um, always put his kids first um, but you know uh, to try and sum him up I tried to sum him up in two books and I don't think I got there so we're not going to do it this afternoon well, What made his and Bjorn's rivalry so special? Contrast um, again Bjorn, Bjorn you know it's not, a, it's not a good comparison, but Andy Murray's having a tough time winning Grand Slam titles because he's got three guys called Djokovic, Nadal and Federer who, who he's got to beat to do it. So he's in a very unlucky era for a player of his level. Bjorn, as I've said, was lucky, re-Wimbledon, because there were no big servant volleyers. He was also, for his image, very lucky to be surrounded by three lunatics in Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe and Ilina Stasi who behaved absolutely appallingly on a regular basis and he was the shining knight there was Bjorn with his beautiful blonde hair and his perfect manners and his cool demeanour and his unruffled temperament and of course he became twice as popular as he would have been anyway because of that and he, you know, Bjorn's no fool he said, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky to have these other guys around because they take all the heat and uh, everybody thinks I'm a nice guy. And it was true. Uh, so Bjorn benefited from that. And um, he was just a wonderful contrast to John McEnroe, uh, both as a personality and as a player. They were, they were night and day. And because of that, opposites attract. <coughs> Excuse me. Opposites attract, and uh, there was an immediate respect because they both knew they were fantastic champions, and they started to have those great battles at Wimbledon. And um, just like I said, Pancho Gonzalez only really respected Lou Hode. I think John McEnroe only really respected Bjorn Borg. Catherine, I could listen to Richard Evans talking about anybody just as long as he wants to, to be quite honest. I love listening to it, to his stories. I think his delivery is just fantastic. And, I mean, you know, he does know John McEnroe so well. He was around at the absolute peak of McEnroe's powers, you know, those halcyon days. And uh, and uh, it, it is riveting, isn't it, to, to hear those stories? Yeah, as you would expect, Richard uses some... Some beautiful and very much uh, on the money turns turns a phrase to sum up a man who, 
as we've just heard, is is very very difficult to to encapsulate in in words, isn't he? He's he's a man of many contradictions. I mean, I very much liked what what um, Richard was saying there about there are absolute there are things that I've seen John do that I that I can't excuse that there there is no excuse for certainly not his his age, a man in his fifties, but. I am in no doubt, as as is Richard, that he is he is a good man. He is a good, per- decent person. Um, yeah, he is, isn't he? It's, he it's, is. it's interesting you say that because I remember one um, Champions Tournament in Belfast, and we're only going back sort of four years. Um, and you know, I've I've probably known John for about fifteen or sixteen years. I thought I'd seen everything there is to see, and he threw in one of the the tantrums of his career, and I mean all the way back in his career to the point where it was it was really awkward to watch you know and and he felt awkward about it afterwards i know he did because because i mean he, he sort of started to 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 realize i think that it wasn't how he wanted to behave and yet the the, the acts of kindness i've witnessed john McEnroe mm. um show including to me i mean he's he's just a really decent guy actually and and um he never forgets he always remembers things and people and and think conversations you may have had and and uh well i can't really say enough good about him and i i don't always agree with everything he's done i'm quite sure he doesn't agree with what we've all done you know but um but there we are i mean let's just get a, a couple of um memories shall we from uh, from our twitter followers we put this out on twitter and asked them for the first time they ever remember uh, seeing john mackin or hearing about him and uh, ewan mcqueen has said uh, uh his mum put uh, a video on of the 1980 final uh, of Borg against McEnroe. He, <laughs> he loved McEnroe's style instantly. Of course, this is the one with the uh, the never-ending tie-break, or seemingly so. And then he read and watched all about his big matches. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, even I'm not quite old enough to to have seen the 80 final live. I, I, my first ever tennis match that I watched, Catherine, on TV was the 1981 Wimbledon final with uh, wow. McEnroe and uh, Borg, and you were what minus five? Five years before I was born. Wow! Oh, I bet my parents think, were watching though. Yeah, I think I, I think I might just. Why did I bring that up? <laughs> um, we have uh, we have Kate Willis uh, who says also the nineteen eighty Wimbledon final. She was fourteen, and she supported him ever since. Had posters all over her room, and even a life sized cardboard cutout fantastic blimey wow <laughs> tracy that's, says that's uh, commitment to that's the McEnroe cause isn't yeah, it absolutely i applaud um, that yeah imagine if you had a life-size cutout of evo karlovich you'd not fit it in your house would you <laughs> uh tracy says that she sent uh, john a letter in 1991 after his interview at wimbledon when he said he was going to retire because it upset her so much she sent him a letter <laughs> oh bless her yeah then didn't, in didn't change his mind though did it yeah sadly. Then, well actually it did because then in 1992 he got to the semis so this was 91 oh, she sent him the letter lo and behold he decides not to comes back gets to the semis of he wimbledon re- he, he retired 92 though didn't he yeah 92? well yeah pretty much pretty much i think it, it might have carried on a bit longer but that was pretty much well, his last year i think and i hope he, i hope you treasured the uh that final year of, of john's i hope you savoured every moment of I it. remember that year vividly when he got to the semis I must say and then he won the doubles on on the Monday because uh, of rain on, oh, the, uh, yes. on the Sunday yeah. and joined up with um, 
Michael Stick, of course, to, yeah. to beat Richie Renneberg and Jim Grab in a match that went on forever. Ooh, blimey. Fantastic. There's there's a memory for you. <laughs> uh, I, I know this because I bunked off school so that I could lo- I could watch it. Um, now he uh, he he went and retired after that. Uh, Tracy points out, uh, but then he came back on the Champions Tour, as we well know, and is still going strong at the age of fifty-four. She loves him. She loves his style and finesse, and his tennis is pure art. Well, Tracy, I think you've nailed it there. Absolutely, yeah, totally agree quite. with you. Uh, Joel Drucker, who is a colleague of ours uh, in the tennis media world, uh, and has been around for a while, and and in fact wrote the book "Jimmy Connors Saved My Life," which I have on my uh, my shelf here uh, as I as I talk to you. Uh, he says that he saw McEnroe at the National Junior event in North California in 1976. It was the year before Wimbledon's, the Wimbledon semi-final run. Wow, imagine that if you were able to go back that far. And in fact, he says, oddly enough, he saw Tatum O'Neill, who was uh, John McEnroe's wife uh, in, uh, in the 80s, uh, in a movie that night. Nice coincidence. <laughs> wow. There you go. That's that's McEnroe overload, isn't it? That's a good memory, that. Uh, and then I asked uh, Joel what, what, his, um, what his impressions of McEnroe were. And he said, you cannot be tweetious, which I, oh. I really feel is worse oh. than a clutch play. Which uh, A clutch play, the reason I have this problem with this expression, is that that is a part of a car as far as I'm concerned. Look, I have a problem with the expression too. I refer you again used to it. my ironical tone. In all seriousness, you used it, Catherine, and I will never forget that. <clears throat> I think I've explained myself. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't uh, anyway, Joel says, we'll, 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 try to, we'll try to excuse Joel's uh, tweetiest uh, comment. Uh, he says it's tough to answer in this format of 100 and whatever characters. Uh, and writing his book about Connors gave him uh, an insight into McEnroe. Well, I'm sure it did. Uh, Tom Nash says that his mother was a big Lendl fan and would seethe when McEnroe was on the telly. Naturally, Tom loved him, a rebel's rebel. Uh, Paul says, uh, Paul Gasset says that uh, there's something real about John from the get-go. There's another one I don't like. Sorry, the get-go. Something raw and unadulterated. The theatrics drew you in. He's fascinating. Well, I think he is, isn't he? I mean, there Mm. there is something about McEnroe that, well, you either love the guy or or you hate the guy as a viewer. I don't think you can watch him without an opinion. No, and the the intensity that he brings to the court, even on the Champions Tour, you know that is absolutely for real. He does. If he ever reaches the day where he feels that he wouldn't be in the mood to compete on a, te- he would he would quit that there and then. You know, he only does it because, you know, yes, the the I'm sure the money's nice, you know, but he does it because he just loves that intense feeling of being on a, a tennis court and, and thrives on on the competition and and that is there regardless of who he's playing or where he is you know I remember seeing him at a, at a Champions Tour event in Luxembourg you know the absolute middle of nowhere you know real back end of beyond and, no, no and, offense people from Luxembourg <laughs> no no offense people from Luxembourg but it was it you know it was a slightly um that it had a slightly eerie feel to it that event didn't it the i mean fantastic crowds and everything but um the the venue was sort of a bit like an aircraft hangar i remember and i sort of remember looking at john thinking what what are you doing here you know you could be at home enjoying your millions you know 
having a lovely time eating tea, drinking tea and eating cake. But he just, <laughs> he, he can't give it up, can he? He just, he needs it. He needs it. And uh, I'm sure there will, there will come a day when uh, he will drink tea and eat lots of cake fact that he's he's you know not able to do it anymore but he's certainly fit enough to do it at the moment and uh i'm not looking forward to the day when he's no longer on the champions tour let's put it that way that day will never come apart from when he decides he wants to drink lots of tea and eat cake um <laughs> <Yeah>. we <laughs> or the american equivalent of that you know? well what, what is that eat a bagel and uh, and some some pretzels maybe I yeah guess. okay right <laughs> uh fair enough we have um uh, Henry Merriweather, who says that um, he always has always loved McEnroe's sharp wit. It makes him just as entertaining now as a pundit as he ever was on the court. Well, I, I think there'll be many who will agree with you on that. Um, the only thing that John Thornbury says he has to say is that he loves the man more than life itself. Wow. And, then he, and then he adds, OK, I might have had a couple of glasses of wine. Speaking of commitment to the McEnroe cause, we've got John Thornbury. <laughs> who who, uh, who trumps it all? I think. Well done, yes, John. Absolutely. Ian Warren says uh, the Mackinac memories uh, for him are the Wimbledon 1992 semi-final loss against Andre Agassi, and uh, I, I remember f- watching Mackinac and seeing the frustration in him that mm. day. Agassi just had an answer for everything, and then of course going on to win that doubles with Michael Stick a couple of days later, uh, and then the other memory Ian has is of the Australian Open. When uh, McEnroe was defaulted in in the round four against Michael Penforce, yeah. and and it was one of those s- slightly eerie moments where I think McEnroe just slightly misunderstood the rules as to when he was. He thought he he'd did. still he got thought he had option. one more warning yeah. in hand, didn't he? He, uh, you know, he probably wouldn't have have taken his uh, outburst. Well, he certainly says he wouldn't have taken uh, taken his outburst to the extent that he did, you know, had he known that he was on his final strike, as it were. Yeah. And uh, before he had a chance to recalibrate and, and figure out the situation, he was, he was being marched off the court. Yeah, so, um, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I remember asking Jerry Armstrong, who was the man who actually had to deliver the words... Uh, uh, you're just, you know, game set match, pen force default, and um, and he, he he said, I must say, I did think to myself, where's the where's the nearest exit? Because <laughs> 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 you know, I mean, McEnroe's eyes bearing in on you um, yeah. when you're basically telling him and a, a, a huge crowd that the match is over is uh, is must be pretty frightening. Um, mm. And on the on that point, you know, when I was a kid, actually watching McEnroe in the early eighties, I remember genuinely being scared of him as as wow. a viewer. I remember watching matches he played and and being frightened, uh, almost like a um, a kid frightened of a villain in a film, um, because didn't know what he was going to do next. You know, it was it was a slightly uncomfortable feeling to watch him you know knowing that anything could happen and that he could be you know really really aggressive and and uh, and, and all that kind of thing um and then my first ever meeting with him was in i think 1998 so we're going back 15 years and uh, my first tournament on the ATP Champions Tour back then and uh, I remember going up to him and saying, trying to sort of, you know, puff my chest out a little bit and stand a little bit taller, even than my six feet seven inches, and uh, and say, 
hi John, uh, I'm David Law. And he said, what's your name? And I said, I didn't say anything. And that was, I was just, I was so nervous uh, around him because he was just, you know, he was, he was a test. He he would test every little moment uh, of, 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 of your time in his company. If you got something wrong, he was, he was on your case, but eventually, you know, I suppose we, we kind of won him over really. And, uh, and actually, as I said, he's capable of great kindness. He's, he doesn't suffer fools, but he's a pleasure to be around. It's a real education anytime you talk to him yeah well said no I um he he doesn't suffer fools but that's that's very much a a quality that I respect in people you know he um he he makes you he he makes you earn his respect and and again I, I I have no problem with that policy he's always been perhaps slightly easier on me I think because he's always associated with you me with you and and i hopefully you know in those early days a little bit of the respect he you had already earned from him rubbed off on me you know um so perhaps i didn't have that in, incredibly intimidating first encounter with him that that you had but i certainly feel that i've had to to earn his trust and respect over the past few years and um probably still a way to go but i you know i feel like we've we've got an understanding <laughs> no he's all right he's all right john and uh, uh and he likes people that talk to him straight and, and he uh, does well long may continue that he's on the atp champions tour he'll be back this year starting on friday in delray beach in florida so if you are in that neck of the woods do try to get a ticket watch him play against pat cash and then against mats Valander on sunday that tournament will be going on over there we'll be able to update you on it on the atp champions tour website and on facebook and twitter and uh, i hope you've enjoyed our chat with john mackino and about john mackino it's been a pleasure to talk about him and you may be wondering where the sue barker part two interview is because we did promise you that didn't we well that'll be coming up in a couple of weeks time uh we uh, we will be bringing you that but we wanted to to get the john mackinaw one in first next week we're going to be talking to ross hutchins who i'm sure you've been hearing about over the last couple of months he's uh, he's battling um uh, cancer at the moment and uh, he's having treatment for that uh, I, I met him a couple of days ago we had a great interview he, he's uh, he's a great guy he's doing well and uh, we'll be talking to him on the tennis podcast next week but thanks for joining us this week and we'll speak to you soon the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.